if you can, think back, if you're a Christian today, think back to the first time that you heard the gospel. And maybe if not the first time, you know, many of us, I think back on my life, I'd heard the gospel many times before I became a Christian or even before I could articulate it. But think back to one of those first times you heard this message that we're sinners in need of a Savior and God's taking care of that through the coming of His Son, Jesus, to earth to die for us and rise from the dead. Think back, if you can, to if not the first time, a significant time in which you heard that message. And that first time you heard it, what did it do for you? What was your response? What was your response? Were you angry? Or were you indifferent? Did it make you happy? Or make you sad? Did it mean anything? But if you can, think back when you heard the gospel, the first time, or maybe the first time you can remember, what did you do with it? What was your response to that information? And maybe closer to home, ask yourself today, when God interrupts your life with something that you either didn't count on, didn't expect, or wouldn't ask for, today, how do you respond? When he asks something of you or from you or asks you not to do something, how do you respond when you hear that? that information. Think about that. As you do, we're going to look into some scriptures in Luke and Matthew, and what I want to do this morning is look at four responses to the message of the gospel, at least in the form it was coming, at the birth of Jesus. Four different situations, four different responses, okay? This is easy. It's like multiple choice. Uh, We're going to start in Luke 1, And we're going to look at Mary. Uh, Some people make too much of Mary, frankly, and sometimes we don't make enough of her. And this morning, as we look at her as an example of a response to the gospel, I think you'll agree with me that Mary is an outstanding example of the way to hear and respond to God's message. Luke 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month, and this is six months after Gabriel, the angel, has appeared to Zechariah and told him, you're having a son. Six months later, the same angel, Gabriel, was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. He was of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, 
and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. <clears throat> now, if you're like me, when I read these Christmas stories, <clears throat> I'm thinking Franco Zeffirelli movies, you know, Golden Light Through Windows, or Charlie Brown Christmases, you know. In other words, I'm thinking romanticized versions. <clears throat> Put this in context, though. If you can, get into Mary's shoes, if not in her skin. This is a little gal, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, younger than you. And she just, this is her life. Life is normal. She is engaged to a good older man, Joseph, down the street. But maybe she's just finished doing the dishes. Or maybe she's just hung the clothes on the line. You, you know, you kind of get the picture. This is just one more day in her life. She doesn't know she's part of a bigger story. It's just one more day. And she turns around, and you remember Zechariah in the temple sees this angel, and his jaw drops, and same thing, fear, and she sees the same angel, and no doubt fear, the angel says, don't be afraid. She sees this messenger from heaven. This would be if, like if you got up this morning, there's an angel standing at your bed. This is shocking. This isn't just a simple romantic story. This is shocking. And she turns around, and here's this angel, and that would be shock enough, but then all of a sudden, he's just rambling. Honey, I've got some news for you. God's favored you. He's chosen you to bear his son. How do you like that? <clears throat> this is, I mean, if we were there, you know, my jaw would still be, you know, at the angel, much less the message. So put yourself in her shoes and think about this. This is shocking. Seeing the angel and the message he gives is even more shocking. So she's saying, okay, so... I'm going to bear the long-awaited Messiah, Savior, King of Israel. And there's no human father, and the child is actually divine, God's son. That's right, that's it. Now, <clears throat> her response in the text is immediate. She asks one question, and the question isn't one of unbelief, but it's of method. Okay, I accept what you say, but how does this thing happen? Because I'm a virgin, and these things don't work this way. So the angel answers the question, it's God's Son, the Holy Spirit is going to cause this conception. You don't, you don't have to worry about a thing. Okay, and her response is immediate. She says what? I'm God's servant, he can do as he pleases. I'm God's servant, he can do as he pleases. <clears throat> now stick with me. <clears throat> Imagine, you know sometimes when you're in an emergency or, or something happens in your life, you know how fast thoughts can go through your mind? fear, terror, joy, whatever. I mean, you know that it's not, it's almost as if you don't have to measure thoughts in time. You can get a stream of thoughts in a moment, in a second. I mean, you know, our brains work fast. So just imagine, she sees the angel and she hears what he has to say. Now imagine the thoughts going through her mind, this quick stream. I have a marriage contract but I'm a virgin, and I'm going to turn up pregnant. And I'm going to have to explain this to my friends and my family and my fiancé. She understands, I think, in a moment, that God is asking her to throw her reputation in the dust. And in fact, you'll see in the Gospels later, particularly John's, uh, there are aspersions cast on the origin of Jesus' birth and lineage. 
she understands she's going to be pregnant and people are going to say, you're not yet married. Remember, for the Jews, engagement was binding. When they make this uh, engagement contract, that was the marriage contract. But typically, after that took place, there was at least a year or so before the marriage took place. But legally, they were married. They simply hadn't consummated the marriage. They weren't living together yet. She's bound. She is married. And she's going to have to go tell Joseph that she's pregnant and he knows this is not his child. And she's going to have to explain this to people who are going to look at her sideways. So in this shocking moment, when the angel appears and then he gives her the message and she responds immediately, I'm God's servant, let him do as he pleases. I have no doubt the thoughts have already rolled through. She doesn't hesitate in her response, but she knows this is going to cost me, and it's going to cost me big time. And she in a moment says, I'm God's servant, let him do as he pleases. And I think basically this reveals the bent of her life and her heart when that trial, that temptation to come to say, no, no way, not me, comes, her immediate response is submission to God's will. Now, put this in another context too. Think of Moses. Moses was the guy Jews looked up to. We are followers of Moses. Moses is our man. And he led the Israelites out of Egypt to the land of promise. Moses, the lawgiver, cool. Well, you know, Moses is a slacker compared to Mary when it comes to responding to God's call on his life. Lord, thanks, but no thanks. Hey, you know what? I don't speak very well. Why don't you get somebody else? <clears throat> Mary's response is remarkable, really remarkable and exemplary. And we do well to, to bear it in mind. So, sudden confrontation from the angel. No doubt a mix, a flurry of thoughts about what is this going to mean. But her immediate response is, I'm God's servant. Let him do as he pleases. Great response and an example for us. <clears throat> Mary's other half, Joseph, has a little different response. And for that, you can look in Matthew 1 if you'd like. I'm going to read from verse 18. By the way, Joseph, as I've studied for this this morning, he's become another Boaz for me. He's one of these quiet figures in the Bible that there's not a lot about him. But what you read, this guy's just sterling. He's, I look forward to meeting these guys in heaven and getting to know them because there's so little here, but, but what is here about them is so good that you know there's this great guy you're going to look forward to meeting and knowing. Well, in Matthew 1.18, the birth of Jesus Christ, Matthew says, was like this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? She was found to be pregnant. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. When he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Joseph rose from his sleep 
and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Now, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. This text does not tell us how he found out Mary was pregnant. But just to put some thoughts in our mind, just let's imagine Mary sits him down one day and talks to him. Put yourself back in Joseph's shoes. Here he is, he's a middle-aged Jew, living in Nazareth, probably now successful in his trade as a carpenter. And life's going along, and it's pretty good. He's lived long enough, he's making enough money, he's got his own place, and now he's engaged to this cute little thing that lives down the street, little Mary, and his dreams of having a wife and a family are about to take place. The covenant has been made. It's just a matter of months, probably, until they get married. Life is good and getting better. And then let's assume little Mary sits down with him one day and says, Joe, I need to talk to you about something. I'm pregnant. And his jaw drops right there, doesn't it? And now you, you know Mary had those thoughts whirling through her mind and... Now the same thing's going on with him. He sees his life and his dreams and his future falling like sand between his fingers, doesn't he? She's pregnant. Great. And she probably continues, And Joe, don't worry because the Father is God. And I'm having the Messiah. You know? And then he's going, Oh man, right. You know, it gets better. It only gets better. So he finds out his life has crumbled before his eyes, but this is genuinely a good man. And he knows he's not going to go through with this marriage. This is not what he's after. This is not what he's dreamed about. And yet he doesn't want to hurt her, so he's going to divorce her, but he'll do it privately because he just wants out now. Just wants out. So Joe's immediate response to the news that the Messiah is entering the world is unbelief. It's incredulity. And I don't blame him one bit. And I don't fault him one bit for this. It's incredulity and it's unbelief. But the angel comes knocking in his dreams and says, Joe, this story is legitimate. This is really going on. This really is the Messiah and you're chosen to be the father of the Messiah and to raise him up as your own. Joseph's response is, the text says, he got up and he obeyed. He got up and he obeyed. Matthew says three more times of Joseph that God speaks to him by an angel in a dream, and the response is the same in each occasion. He gets up and he obeys. to the first thought of this message, he just can't believe it. But when the the message or the testimony is verified by a second witness, and this is biblical, God says you confirm a thing by two or three witnesses. This is okay. Joseph gets a second witness, and it's an angel. And so he's good to go now. As soon as the message was verified... All it says of him is, he got up and he obeyed. He believed. When he could believe, he did. And then he got up and he did what the angel said. So Joseph is an example of someone who hears God's word and it's too wild to be true. 
it's too good to be true, it's too far-fetched, I can't believe that. But when it's verified, they say, well, I understand now, I've got you, I understand, and I'm good to go, and I follow through. And that's what Joseph did. Initial, nope, don't believe you. Verification, okay, I now understand, and he gets up and he obeys, and that's the testimony. And think of him, when Mary's talking to him, as I'm guessing here, his life is crumbling before his eyes, his future and his dreams. When the angel talks to him in the dream, let's just see that next stream of thought, probably something like this. Okay, she's pregnant, we've got to move the wedding up. Now people are going to say, gee, why'd you move the wedding up? My wife and I did this, and I didn't realize that for years she worried that Rachel would be full term because we moved a September wedding to July, and I had no idea that she was worried that other people would think there was any reason other than the real one for us moving our wedding up, that she was pregnant. She was sweating it out our whole first year of marriage until Rachel was full term. And people knew there was no illicit reason for the move of the date. But here Joseph knows we're going to move up our wedding. People are going to say, why are you doing that? The baby's going to come early long, because she's already pregnant. They're going to be counting the weeks and the months. And I'm going to live with this cloud over my head the rest of my life. More than that, I've now got the weight of the world, so to speak, on my shoulders. I'm raising the Messiah of Israel. And guess what? No one is going to know. No one's going to know. You talk about a model of humility and service. This guy labors and he dies before Jesus is an adult, at least 30 years old. He's never mentioned in the Gospels other than as the father of Jesus. And when he's mentioned there, it's to prove that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because he's just the son of that carpenter from Nazareth. This guy gets no respect. He gets no credit in his life on earth. And then he dies. So I'm sure for him, with the message of the angel, okay, it's verified, I get it, and I'm obeying. But there's cost. There's cost for him too. Just like with Mary, reputation is in the dust. People are going to misunderstand, and he's going to have to live with it. And that's the way it is. But once the information is verified, he's good to go. And he does. The third situation with its response is in Matthew 2. We'll just keep reading our story here. This isn't one person, it's a group. And you know, contrary to popular school plays, we don't know how many magi there were. We don't know what countries they're from. We don't know their names. But it's a group. And we know they're from the East. And in Matthew 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. 
Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. <clears throat> he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, that I too may come and worship him. Right. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, kingly gifts. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Now, in some ways, the response of the Magi uh, is as remarkable, in my mind, as Mary's. Now, think about this for just a minute. This text also does not tell us what their initial information was. It doesn't tell us specifically how they knew. They're, they're clued into a star, we know that, and probably these guys had the Hebrew scriptures. They probably knew about a prophecy by Balaam in Numbers 24:17, in which Balaam at the time of the Exodus said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel. A star is going to come from Israel, Jacob, the descendants of Jacob, and a scepter, a king, will rise with that star. A star and a king in Israel. They probably knew this. And also, <clears throat> you know, Genesis 1 says that God gave stars for signs and seasons. And I'm not talking about astrology. But I assume, too, that these wise men knew from the star and perhaps other things that they saw in the heavens that this wasn't just a star or even a unique star, but it was this star, that it was this star that signaled the rise of a king in Israel. You know, even if you look in Revelation in the future, movements in the heavens, in the stars, the moon and the sun, will be indications of what God is doing. And I assume these guys knew enough of this kind of knowledge that they knew that star with this prophecy meant this promised king from 1,400 years earlier had come. They knew that, probably. So they've seen the star, they know, they know the prophecy, <clears throat> and they come to Israel. Now, put yourself in their shoes. These guys, they're probably wealthy, uh, magi, wise men, they're probably well-to-do. And here's a dusty old prophecy in this foreign holy book, and there's a star. And you know what? Even if they knew that this meant what it meant, they could have sat at home and said, gee, that's neat. <clears throat> what does their response of coming to Judah cost them? See, they probably had their successful life at home, studying the stars, reading the text, you know, a librarian, an academic, something, life's good, and it's easy. And we don't know where they're from. Could be, it says east. Uh, most people did not come to Israel from directly east. Um, because of the Fertile Crescent, they tended to come through the fertile area. So the east could mean Saudi Arabia, but 
It could mean modern-day Iran, Iraq. We don't know how far they came from the east. <clears throat> but as dangerous as travel is there today, it was equally dangerous then. This leaving to Judah to go check out this king, this meant that they packed up their comfortable life, left the comforts of hearth and home, and traveled dangerous routes to go find this king and worship. This is remarkable. They were comfortable. I'm sure life was good. These kinds of trips were costly, and they were dangerous. And yet these guys pack up and head west to find the king so that they can worship. And I'd suggest that like Mary's, I find this response absolutely remarkable. I probably would have stayed at home in my comfortable chair, in my comfortable life. But they didn't. They got up and left. They pursued the information they had until they personally came face to face with this king. And then they worshipped. So it cost them. And they had time to think about it. You know, if you're like me, the, sometimes the longer I have to think about it, the more reasons I find why I shouldn't do something that's going to cost me or impose on my life or my comfort or my desires. They had time, but it didn't dissuade them. They were committed, and they went and they found him. And I mentioned last week that Jesus' coming was first for the Jews. Absolutely was. But you know, the presence of the Magi here is a great reminder that Jesus came first for the Jews, but he also came for Gentiles like most of us are. And the Magi, these Gentiles from some distant land, are there at his birth, worship, his birth worshiping, and I have no doubt believing. God communicates with them in a dream. I'm assuming we'll see these guys in heaven too. But their response to this information from a dusty old foreign holy book and the rise of a star was they counted the cost, they loaded their camels, and they headed west till they found him and saw him and worshipped him. This is remarkable. This is remarkable and also exemplary. The last person I want to look at in their response to this initial confrontation with God's message is in the passage we just read, and that's Herod. <clears throat> and with today's news, if you think of an ancient Saddam Hussein, that would be about Herod the Great. I confess I'm fascinated by Herod the Great. If you read anything like F.F. F. Bruce's History of the New Testament or something along that line, uh, other writings about this guy, he was really a remarkable historical figure. He was an Edomite, that is, he was a descendant of Esau, who was made king of greater Israel, actually an area bigger than the nation of Israel, by the Romans. And this guy was remarkable both for his shrewd calculations and really uh, courage under fire. He earned his reputation leading armies in battle in his youth. He was unafraid. He wasn't at the back of the line. He was in the front. He calculated and he won battle after battle, which is why Rome made him the king in Israel. Besides being genuinely courageous and fearless, he was incredibly calculating. Uh, Saddam Hussein, think of him. Think of Joe Stalin in Russia. He's like this. And by that I mean, 
If he sensed or thought he sensed any rebellion in the ranks, any movement under his thumb in his kingdom that might upset his power and balance, he was ruthless in getting rid of it. This was a guy who had his sons executed. This was a guy who had his wife murdered. <clears throat> to be related to Herod was not necessarily a good thing. His sons did rule briefly after his rule, but only briefly. So incredibly shrewd, very courageous, and when this message comes to him, Herod's in the waning years of his life. He only lives about one to three years after this incident. The message comes, the king of Israel's been born. And do you remember his initial response? He's troubled. This guy who's used to putting out fires and putting down revolt of any kind, he sees trouble. All right, a Messiah. See, at some level, he doesn't care if this is legitimate or not because perception in politics is everything. It doesn't have to be real. But he does consult the priests and says, where's this supposed to take place? Well, down there south in Bethlehem. Okay, you guys go and find him and then come tell me so I can worship too. He's clever, but he's troubled because he senses potential trouble for his kingdom. Now, trouble turns to anger or rage and more murder. And in Matthew 2.16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged. He sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he understood from the Magi. Now think about this. If you're Herod, you've made a life of killing and avoiding death. And here comes news of a king in your kingdom. And so you're troubled. I would be too. But now think about this for just a minute. What would it have cost Herod to investigate the possibility that this was real and to have worshipped the Messiah with the Magi? What would it have cost him? And I mean really. Maybe he's in the waning years of his life. Maybe he has a total turn of heart and he comes and he believes and he worships. What would it have cost him? It could have cost him the last three years of his reign, potentially. He doesn't choose who kings are in his corner of the world. Rome does. If he says this is the king of Israel, his Roman uh, lords might not like that. They might say, we're replacing you with someone else. And you know, later, the Jews, Israel is going to reject Jesus. Maybe they'll reject him now too. I mean, this would have had its political liability or, or potential liability too. So it could have cost him. Could have cost him if he had acknowledged Jesus or searched it out like Joseph did to verify if it was true or not. But we don't know because that's not what he did. What did his rejection of this message cost him, though? <clears throat> He's troubled initially. I'll buy that. But then trouble turns to rage and murder and obviously ultimate rejection. What did that cost him? He dies within the next three years. He dies insane. In fact, if you know his end, <clears throat> to make sure he was wept at his death, he had the Hippodrome in Caesarea filled with Jewish leaders and ordered his commanders to murder them as soon as he died so that there would be lamentation surrounding his death because there wouldn't be otherwise. 
the commanders did not fulfill his command. But this was the kind of insanity he died in. And he died physically diseased, like one of his descendants would. Physically diseased also. And as far as we know, Christless, without God, without hope, entering eternity. And I wouldn't wish that on Herod or Stalin or Hussein. That's what rejection cost him. So, here's four different people or groups, and they're getting the message that a Savior, a Messiah King, has been born in Israel. And there's four different responses. Mary's is immediate. Submission, I'm your servant, do as you please. But there's a cost. Her reputation's down the drain. She's going to be misunderstood the rest of her life. Family and friends may reject her, but she's willing to do it. And the reward, at least short term, men and angels called her blessed. Lots of pain, no insignificant cost, but an upside as well. Or think of Joseph. His response was initially, I don't believe it. But when there's verification, he not only believes, but he gives himself fully to it, and he follows through and obeys and does everything God requires of him. And he's an absolute picture of humility and service for you and I today because of that. Or think of the Magi. They had time to sit and soak. Think about it. And what do they do? They pack up. They head west. They go on dangerous routes, and they spend their money to go worship a baby in a small foreign land. So it costs them. And what they get? Well, they got exceeding joy. It costs them, but they got exceeding joy. I should say here, too, a lot of times we tend to focus on what it costs to follow Christ. And you know salvation is free. Salvation is a gift. You can't earn it. You don't do anything for it except open your hands and take it. Discipleship costs you everything. Salvation's free, but salvation or excuse me, but discipleship, growth in Christ costs you everything. Uh, you know, take up your cross, Jesus says, if you're my follower, my disciple, and follow me. And that means death to who we were and what we were and what we wanted. It costs us everything. However, don't just focus on what it costs these folks or what it costs you and I today to follow Christ. God is no one's debtor. And whether it's in time or in eternity, you don't do one thing for God that he doesn't bless you for and reward you for, if not in time, then in eternity. Now, Joseph in time, he's kind of a loser. I mean, on the big picture, now he probably had personal encouragement. He probably had a great and, and rewarding life personally. But a bigger scale, there was no reward for Joseph. But you know what? There is an eternity. All I'm saying is, no matter what, faith and obedience costs in this life, we don't serve God at our cost. He blesses, and He gives more than we can think about in response to our faith and our obedience. Not always in this life, sometimes some of that we get in this life. Jesus says, have you lost your family here? Don't worry, you'll have a hundred times more in this life. And in the future, eternal life. So I just want to make clear, it costs each one of them something to respond to the good news. It costs them. 
but there's a reward, not just cost. And the reward is bigger and better than whatever our short-term loss is. And then think of Herod. What did it cost Herod to reject the news and the message he heard? See, it cost him, as far as we know, eternal life. Herod dies, as far as we know, insane, without God, without Christ, and without hope. That's what his response cost him. So, back to the beginning. When you heard about Jesus Christ and your sin, how did you respond? I think back... Uh, my initial, you know, it was inconsequential the first times I heard the gospel. I couldn't have cared less. I was too busy partying and, and having what I thought was a good time. When I heard the gospel at K-State, though, October 5th, 1976, in the Union, I've taken my girls to the spot where I became a Christian, all of a sudden it made sense. I was a miserable, lonely kid contemplating suicide, and somebody tells me that, Jesus died for my sins, and suddenly the connection between not my sin, in my folly, I didn't fear hell or judgment, I feared loneliness. I hated being lonely, and I had outward success, but I was dying inside. And when I heard the gospel that day in the Union, I suddenly understood that that was the answer to my personal loneliness. Well, it made sense. I understood then. And I said, absolutely, I'll take it today to go. <clears throat> but think back, where were you when you heard it? What was your response? And was it Mary's, or was it Joseph's, or was it the Magi, or was it Herod's? And maybe more to the point today, well, two things. If you're not sure where you're at with Christ, you know, the first thing is to be settled. You've got to join Mary. You've got to join Joseph or the Magi. This isn't tough. All we do is say to Jesus, I trust you. I give you my hopes for eternity. I give you my sins, trusting that you've paid for them. We're going to have the Lord's Supper later. I take this message to heart, and I receive it, and I say thanks, Lord. If you haven't done that, do that. Nothing else matters if you don't do that. If you've come to Christ, then the, then the question becomes, each and every day of your life and mine, how do I respond today? to God's message to me. Not about salvation anymore. If you've trusted, you're going to heaven. You belong to him. But how do you respond today when God drops, not a pebble in your serene life, but a boulder? How do you respond when God shakes up your world and requires something of you you don't want to give? Or something that's going to cost you you know, this Christmas season, Christmas holidays like this generally are fraught with tension and strife because there's so much going on. There's so much going on, and we're seeing so many people, and there's so many expectations. So this Christmas season, I guarantee you're going to have temptations to reject God's call on your life as a servant and as his representative and as someone who lays down their life for someone else. Could be with your family, could be with friends. God may ask you to do something you're uncomfortable doing. He may ask you to do something that you feel is potentially embarrassing. Or He may ask you not to do something that you really want to do. 
How do you respond? How do you respond? My challenge to us this morning is join the ranks of Mary and Joseph and the Magi. You know, if you're able to say right off the bat, Lord, you're God, I'm your servant, do as you please, great. You know, if you're with Joe and you say, man, Lord, I need need to hear more than this. I need this verified or I'm not going out on that limb. That's okay, because God can confirm. If that's what we need, he can do that, and he does. And that's okay, but when he confirms it, then follow through like Joe did. Get up and obey. Or be with the Magi. You know, they didn't have much to go on. They had a star and a dusty old prophecy, and they got up and left home till they found the king. But you know what they got? They got exceeding joy. They got exceeding joy. And I'll tell you, for all that we have in this country we live in materialistically, this is a country devoid of joy and peace. People place their hopes in material possessions and material possessions and finances and academics and you name it cannot give anyone joy and peace. These guys found it at the feet of Jesus Christ when they gave him their gifts and worshipped. They got joy. And when you and I say yes to God's design for us this Christmas season or next week or next month or next year, that's what we get. We get joy. Following Christ will cost us all along the way. It may mean you get up and you change those dirty diapers in the middle of the night when you'd rather just lie in bed. Or it may mean that you're driving across state or whatever to take care of that sick parent. I'm speaking of things I know going on in this church. Uncomfortable. Shifts your life. It's not what you'd planned, not what you wanted. But how do you respond? What do you do? When God gives us the message, do this, do that, go here, go that. Go there. Cost me my reputation. Cost me my comfort or my convenience or cost me cash or whatever. How do we respond? We, we need to this Christmas or any other time, we need to be walking, joining the ranks of Mary and Joseph and the Magi and respond as they did. You don't want to go where Herod went, either in eternity or just as the course of your life. This guy had the power and the wealth and he died insane and diseased and Christless and godless and hopeless. And you know, Christ, he's over here and it's life. And no matter what it means, short term, you follow him, you get the joy, you get the peace. And in the end, he rewards you for it. This is kind of a no-brainer. This is a, a no-lose opportunity. Yes, short-term pain maybe, but long-term, further up, further in better and better. Let's pray. Lord, I am just reminded again that none of us serves you ultimately at our own cost. We are soldiers in your army. We are children in your family. Lord, it's you that foots the bill. And you may tell us to go here or there or do this or that or refrain from doing one thing or another. But Lord, ultimately, it's always at your expense. For us to lose here is in fact to gain. And Lord, when we lose our life by saying yes to you, we gain real life, real joy, 
real peace, and we get to be a part of the greatest story ever told. We get to be a part of your work in the world today. Father, help us not to settle for our life as we would choose to live it out, but when we're startled like Mary from the angel with what you're asking us to do, or when we're seeking verification as Joseph did, or if we're traveling the distance with the Magi, to see your will fulfilled. Help us just to set our hopes and our hearts on you. And Lord, if obedience costs us reputation or finance or family or friends, whatever, help us to remember that you're bigger than all these circumstances and that the smallest thing done for you will be more than adequately rewarded. If not in time, Father, in eternity. Lord, this Christmas season, we want to bow with these wise men, truly wise, who worshipped you. And Lord, as we worship, we want to do so with the joy that comes from knowing and from serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.